0: Alright, we are in Psalm 82. You heard Rob, if you were here early, there's a typo in your bulletin. We're not doing Psalm 80 again, that was three weeks ago. We're doing Psalm 82. And I might add that if you have a Bible with you today, whether it's a paper copy or whether you use it um, on your phone, on an app when you come to church, I want you to have it handy today because this is going to be a little bit like a hybrid of a sermon and maybe a Bible study, okay? Okay. So let's read God's word, uh, Psalm 82, verses 1 through 8. Ask for his blessing upon the reading and especially the hearing, and then we will dive right in. Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth for you shall inherit all the nations. Let's pray. Father, we have before us um, language in your word, in a psalm that we are not normally uh, used to using and sometimes makes it a little uncomfortable when we hear um, the language of the gods um, in the Bible. But Lord, help us to see that there is nothing to fear here, but Lord, there is much to learn. And so we ask that you would open our minds, um, not that we would um, uh, believe everything that we hear, but we would be like the Bereans, that we would test all things according to scripture. Um, And Lord, we would follow you wherever um, your word leads us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So college finals were approaching, and my friend Josh felt God calling. Uh, here's the way the story goes. So he was my Roman Catholic friend when I was in college, and he was the oldest of like 10 or 20 kids, I and mean, I can't remember how many it was, and I think that he probably didn't remember either. But he got called by his family right when his little baby brother was going to be born to be his godfather. And so he felt, heard this call from home, I want you to come home, you're going to be the kid's godfather, like that. And he thought, how can, I, how can I dismiss this? How can I? How can I say no? And so... He talked to his friends, including me, and we said, this is college finals week. I mean, how is this going to work? I mean, I need to go home for this. It's not just on Sunday. There's like a week of festivities in my, my large Roman Catholic family. So we thought, maybe you just need to kind of come clean and go talk to your professors and say, can I leave town and go home and somehow schedule these final exams later? And we prayed for them, and uh, we you know, encouraged him to say, you know, reasonable people, they're, they're going to listen to you. So he got up his gumption, and the very next day he went to his very first professor, who he was going to have to miss an exam, and he explained a story, and uh, the professor balked and said, that's a good one, I've never heard that one before, but you can go, but you have to take the exam, and then he, I don't remember the details, but he laid it out so that it was going to be really uncomfortable time and difficult for him to get some study time in for that particular exam. And he came back and told us how it went, and we went, oh, that is so... Unfair. I mean, the godfather. You got to go when God's calling, when the family's calling. I mean, college, that's got to fall, you know, way down the list of priorities. And so what he did was he went home. He became his brother's godfather. He came back, took the exam, flunked it, flunked the class, and extended his college career. <sighs> that's not fair. Now, why do I answer Uh, an illustration like that that's kind of trivial, kind of uncomfortable. Well, every person who's ever been the victim of a raw deal and then didn't get a fair hearing knows what injustice feels like. It's wrong, and it's even dehumanizing. I mean, his professor said, I don't believe you. I think you're lying through your teeth. That's a good one, though, but I'm going to make you pay for it. Regardless of your skin color, your religion, your nationality, Injustice, though, I think we see is a human problem found worldwide. But if injustice is an everywhere problem, in all times and in all places, do you ever stop to wonder if there's a comprehensive kind of unseen explanation to what's going on behind the scenes? Like a, like a spiritual evil that's lurking just in a way that you can't see what's going on? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is yes. And not just yes, because there's so much more to say. The answer we're going to find in Psalm 82 is more life-transforming than many people, including Christians, imagine. What we're going to learn here in Psalm 82 is that the eternal God presided over his divine counsel, verse 1, to judge his heavenly sons for their unjust rule over those who are afflicted um, in the Gentile nations. And when these created but fallen gods, and we'll explain this and explore this a little bit uh, in a moment, when they die, God, the God of true justice will inherit again all nations for Christ's kingdom. What's the application that I want us to eventually get to? That we will open our eyes to the unseen world. Because here in Psalm 82, we get a glimpse of what we normally don't think about at all. It's the reason why I chose the songs, that, the songs that we've sung so far in our worship service, and then the one that we'll look at or sing at the very end, Let All more of Flesh Keep Silence. Because they take our eyes off of the here and now, where we always think, so what? How does it affect my life? Not recognizing that in the span of eternity, our life is like that short. And eternity goes on Forever. And that's where God wants us to keep our perspective. So before we dive in, I want to just, again, remind you, give you a little bit of background where we are if you're visiting with us today. We're we're kind of in this scattershot sermon series through uh, book three of the Psalter, the book of Psalms. The last time, we looked at Psalm 80 and how divine justice must work its way into our hearts and our lives and communities if we are to be shaped as a restored and saved people who follow Jesus. And there's a lot more to say about justice. If you missed Psalm 80, go back and listen to the recording or watch the, the video of that sermon. It's the major point of Psalm 82, but there's also an elephant in the room that we have to spend the bulk of our time uh, exploring. We're in Book 3 of the Psalter, as I said, which can be called the Book of Exile. Okay? It contains psalms that are particularly relevant for believers who find themselves surrounded by powerful rulers and authorities and judges who judge unjustly and then turn around and favor the wicked over the defenseless. Those are the kind of psalms that we find in Book 3. And Psalm 82 is a rich resource for not only understanding what is happening in the unseen world around us, but also how to cry out for help and to overcome by faith in God. And I just got eye contact with Sean Lambert. I told you a few weeks ago to pray for me when I preached Psalm 82. I know you did, because here I am, (laughs) mustering up my courage to preach through it. The way we're going to look through Psalm 82 is through three points. Introducing the unseen world, or the unseen worldview. Uh, If you get confused, by the way, there are sermon notes that are back on the back table. You can pick those up after. Please don't go grab them right now. But we're going to be looking at a lot of verses this morning. Point two seeing the unseen world, or seeing the unseen worldview, and number three, living in the unseen world, or worldview. And before we jump into the unseen, we have to introduce it, and we have to get around a traditional, may I say, interpretation, okay? The big question that we look at in verses one and six are, who are these quote-unquote gods, or in the Hebrew, Elohim? You've heard the term Elohim before, right? Often we translate that as God. Capital E-L-O-H-I-M. Elohim. Well, sometimes in the Bible it's not referring to God, but it's referring to gods because Elohim is the plural for the word God in Hebrew. So who are these these Elohim and who are these sons of God who are in view here in verses 1 through 6? Well, let's quickly review the traditional view, okay? Human judges and rulers... May sometimes, debatably though, be translated from that term, gods slash Elohim, because those human judges and rulers functionally exercise the judicial rule of God. Okay, there are some examples of that in some of the older English translations in Exodus chapter twenty-one and Exodus chapter twenty-two, where it talks about how if you have a problem, then you go to Elohim and they'll work it out. Well, you're going to the judges but you're also going to God, whom the judge, uh, who's going to be working through the judges. Do you kind of see how this works a little bit? This has been the simple majority view of Psalm 82 as reflected in the history of English translations. Follow me here, okay? The older translations that render the Hebrew phrase, you ready? The Council of El, and El is just a shortened name uh, often in the Bible for Elohim, uh, kind of like how... Um, uh, Hallelujah is the long version, and sometimes they say hallelujah. You're still saying praise the Lord, praise. It's a shortened version. Those older translations render, render that term, the Council of El, as the great assembly. So if you have a King James version in front of you, you'll see that that's what it says in verse 1, or the original NIV, okay? Or they might render it God's own congregation. Uh, the New American Standard renders it that way. So if you've got that one on your lap, then that's what you're seeing in verse 1. And what that's referring to is that God stands among judges and rulers of his own people. So the the setting here, according to the traditional view, is that God is talking to the rulers in Israel, okay? But here's the problem. Those translators, none of them, uh, didn't know how the phrase, the Council of El, was widely used in the holy writings of other peoples in the ancient Near East and in ancient Israel, it wasn't until decades after a treasure trove of uh, written tablets were discovered in 1928 and following um, at Ugarit in Syria um, did it become clear to textual scholars what the Council of El meant. Okay? Again, follow me here. I see that you're start- I'm starting to lose you. You've got to follow me here. Because these kind of matters always take time to- for scholarly census to, de- to develop a newfound understanding of the Council of El has slowly been working its way into biblical scholarship, into the newer Bible translations. So, for example, the New Revised Standard Version, the Christian Standard Bible, the ESV, which we use here at church, the New Living Translation, the New English Translation, working its way into the seminaries, working its way, finally, into the church, which brings us to 2021 here at Heritage Presbyterian. Okay, so what is the Council of El that sets the scene for Psalm 82. Here is what I call the recovered ancient view, or you might call it the divine council view. You can find evidence of it in several psalms and throughout uh, the the Bible. Um, In the notes, we have Psalms 8, 29, 89, which we'll be looking at in a little bit, all the way into the book of Revelation, chapter 7. But let's rewind a little bit to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament... We sometimes think that the gods and the Elohim, they're kind of imagined deities that idols represent. you know, Kind of like a coin that represents the god of the almighty dollar, but we all know that the almighty dollar is a, is a made-up god, but people still worship the almighty dollar. We might think of it this way like, don't sweat it because Yahweh the Lord exists. Uh, the false gods are just kind of made up, made up nothings by ignorant pagans uh, who believe in them. Well, Here's where we're going to get a little uncomfortable. But again, stay with me. If you believe that, and you say that you believe the Bible, then you're going to have to change something in your mind. All right? Because the Bible's view of the unseen world is that we live in a place that is teeming with spiritual entities created by God. Okay? Not eternal, like like God eternal. Not like the, the Yahweh the Lord to roam the heavenly realm. In other words, the lowercase gods, as, or as the Bible says, the Elohim, lowercase e, are real. Okay? Now what do I mean by that? Often the Old Testament calls them the heavenly hosts, which are created heavenly beings that are alive and animated and intelligent and supernaturally powerful. And the whole Bible refers to them as uh, entities like angels and demons. Cherubim, that's the plural for cherubs. Seraphim, we sung about them or we're going to sing about them this, uh, later this morning. In the New Testament, principalities, powers, um, rulers of the darkness and other spiritual creatures in the unseen realm. Now more to the point, back to Psalm 82. In the Old Testament, the sons of God are always, always supernatural beings. You can see this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, and verse 4. We see it in Job um, chapters 1, 2, and 38. And we're going to look at a few of these a little bit more closely here in a moment. And the Council of El, which you've been waiting, what does this mean? Turns out to be a well-known concept in the ancient Near East that describes the Most High God presiding over his council of lesser deities. Now, in the Bible, which is monotheistic, this works out to be the Most High God who presides over his created spiritual beings who act as his agents for what happens on the earth. Drill down further and you'll find that there's one other passage in the Old Testament that refers to the sons of the Most High, Okay, so if you have Bible software or if you use the internet to search uh, things in your Bible, cross-references, that sort of thing, you search for sons of the Most High, and you're going to find just one companion passage in the Old Testament, and it's the one that's printed at the top of your bulletin, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 7 through 9, which is kind of the introduction to the Song of Moses, as Moses is recounting uh, God's uh, salvation of the Israelites out of Egypt and telling them how he's worked it all out from eternity past and how it's all going to work in the future. That's, that, that passage, Deuteronomy 32, illuminates the inner workings of the divine council. I want us to think of the divine council as God's heavenly group, God's heavenly council as earth's mission control room, okay? Okay? That's the way it's portrayed in the scriptures. Psalm 82 and the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, they have several important textual links. And I'm glad that the elder over here is looking at me with his head cocked because I haven't said anything to be able to thoroughly convince you yet. But again, <laughs> the name of the game today is follow me, okay? Be a Berean. Textual links between Psalm 82 and Deuteronomy 32. Both are for God's people who are living outside of the promised land, either in a state of exile or in a state of exodus. Both refer to the gods or to the Elohim as sons of God or sons of the Most High. Again, these are terms that are rarely used in the Old Testament, but they're both used here. Both deal with the foolish and senseless sins of idolatry and injustice. And both are concerned with the earthly administration an inheritance of nations from the heavenly mission control room of the divine council. Now, concerning the division of the nations and their inheritance, you saw that printed at the top of your bulletin, Deuteronomy 32, when God divided the nations. The song of Moses informs us why God judged the gods in Psalm 82. You saw that, Psalm 82, right? God is judging the gods. Deuteronomy 32 tells us a why. The gods, or the sons of the Most High, are culpable because God allowed them administration and possession of the nations when he divided the peoples in judgment at the Tower of Babel. We're tracing what God's saying back through the scriptures. Now we're in Genesis chapter 11. Okay? Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 11. So in terms of God's special covenantal grace, he reserves for himself a people called Jacob, or Israel. That's Deuteronomy 32, 9. But to the rest of the nations, as their punishment for making themselves like God and saying that we will make a name for ourselves and we'll rise to heaven, he, dis- he confuses their languages, he disperses them, and then he divides them and allots them land according to the number of the sons of God. Deuteronomy 32, 8. What's going on there? God is basically saying, I'm disinheriting the nations. And you, my Elohim, are now responsible until the fullness of time comes to preside over these particular nations. Now, what does the rest of the scripture and history tell us what happened after God did that? Each glory-hungry and power-wielding fallen God seduced their people to act unjustly by favoring the wicked and trampling the defenseless. Again, ancient history repeats this and uncontestably testifies that every people, tribe, tongue, and nation succumbed to idolatry and the unjust treatment of the poor and helpless in their midst. This is the Bible's explanation for how that all happened. It was when God allotted to to the sons of God, the heavenly created beings, administration, to preside over the nations whom God was disinheriting for a time because he was reserving for his own administration, for his own lordship, the peculiar people of the nation of Israel. Now here's the takeaway. Every single human being and people group are indeed fallen in Adam. That's the Bible's doctrine of personal corruption, or what we call in the Reformed Church total depravity. But every nation was also intentionally led astray by the sons of God that the Lord allotted to it. That's the doctrine of systemic corruption, or what we might call structural depravity. This national, systemic, deep-seated corruption is orchestrated in the unseen world, in heaven's mission control room, if you will, by the fallen sons of God. And the unseen of the world of the Bible reveals... Terrible heavenly and earthly judgments that befall all of us at one point or another because, the Bible says, of past rebellion against God. On the part of earthlings like us, the sons of Adam, and also on the part of heavenly creatures like angels and demons and other spiritual creatures, the sons of God. Are you following me here? I'm getting a few yeses, a few noes. Hmm. Let's take a look at some other passages in Scripture to see that we can actually see in the Bible a glimpse of the unseen worldview. Because the supernatural world of the Bible is hidden in plain sight. It really is. Most of us, we spend our time in in, uh, our favorite passages in the Bible, and we have the ones that we have on our Bible cards that we memorize, and we don't spend much time in those kind of weird portions of the Bible, if you know what I mean. God's heavenly council, comprised of those heavenly Elohim, who are sometimes called sons of God or sons of the Most High, convenes when God works with his sons as his agents. Okay? Here are two examples of this in the unseen world in the Bible. If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 22, beginning at verse 19. Uh, I think it was only a year or so ago when Pastor Larry uh, preached through this passage when we were going through the books of uh, Kings. Here we get to peer into a meeting of God's divine counsel those spiritual beings in heaven. And what happens is God assigns one particular spirit to entice Israel's king Ahab to go to war and then die in battle. In other words, God is commissioning a spirit to, in a sense, commit a sin to lie because Ahab has turned his back on him and Ahab's turn for judgment has come. And so the spirit will entice him by becoming a lying spirit in the mouth of one of Ahab's false prophets. And all this is at the Lord's behest to render judgment and disaster on his faithless king, King Ahab. Normally, you don't get to uh, see, have a window into the divine council, but it's 1 Kings 22, we get to see what's happening there. Here's another example. Job chapter 1. Some of you are familiar with the, the very beginning of the book of Job that kind of sets the scene for the long poems back and forth with Job and his three friends that form the bulk of the book. Well, the sons of God, including Satan have access to God in heaven. Strange, isn't it? Twice Satan presents himself before the Lord, it says, among the sons of God. And Satan contends with God regarding Job's blessings and his protection, because Job's personal righteousness is at stake. At the end of the book, in in Job uh, 38, we see the morning stars, okay, the morning stars, but they're parallel with the sons of God shouting for joy in the heavens. Because remember, sometimes the heavenly hosts are are portrayed as the stars in the heavens, and sometimes we, in a sense, look through those stars and see what they represent. The heavenly host of the angelic beings, or the fallen sons of God in heaven. This is the Bible's world view of the unseen world. If you understand and believe what the Bible teaches is actually true about the unseen heavenly realm, then you'll be able to understand God's Supernatural workings through the eyes of faith. And if every, then, every now and then, when God allows it, faith in what you normally cannot see becomes sight. The scripture talks about how um, 2 Kings chapter 6, um, Elisha prays for Gehazi, that, that God would open his eyes so that he would see that the armies of the Lord are more than the armies that are of, of those of Syria who are against them. And what does God do? he spiritually opens Gehazi's eyes and his ears and then he's able to hear the the chariots of heaven in the the treetops. And his his confidence perks up because he realizes, oh, Syria doesn't stand a chance. God's heavenly armories are here. And Elisha goes, yeah, they're always here. You just can't see them. There's also another way that we can see the unseen world in the Bible, because many difficult and strange, what I call the weird Bible passages, can be harmonized through the divine counsel worldview. Let me explain. When you take this this strange kind of divine counsel worldview that I'm proposing to you this morning on a few test drives through the scriptures, it becomes more and more difficult to dismiss the traditional view. Why? Because interpreting Psalm eighty-two, according to the Divine Council worldview, has immense explanatory power. This is one of the reasons why the modern Bible translations are saying, "Traditional view it was it was dominant for a long time, but we give up." When you put them all together, it's it's pretty obvious what's happening here. We know more now. Many of the weird Bible passages uh, in both the Old and the New Testament. They, they do need individual explanations when uh, apologetic conversations start to come up, and we try to do our very best to be able to, to give an answer to those who, who have a question about the, the Scripture. And sometimes that's the best we can do. But I want us to see that it turns out that many of those weird passages, and I'll explain what I mean in a moment, actually harmonize to make sense in the divine council view. Here's a few examples to show that their, har- show their harmony when viewed through the unseen world, okay? If you've got the, the, the sermon notes, there's, a, there's five of them here. Genesis 6, 1 through 8. You've got a Bible turn there. This is one of those weird Bible passages that preachers kind of like to, to skip around. It's about the wickedness of humankind and the sons of God. The sons of God here in this passage, fallen angelic hosts, again, this is according to the view that I'm proposing, who left their assigned abode in the heavens, they married the daughters of men, and then their offspring were kind of like what we talk about in Greek mythology, the demigods, like half gods, half men, what? Huh? Easy to skip that one. The offspring of, of, of these folks were called the Nephilim in the Bible, the mighty men of long ago who were men of renown, and the Nephilim, get this, kids, this gets exciting, are connected to the Anakim, who are connected to the Rephaim, who are connected to the Amim, who are connected to the Zamzamin, all the same sorts of people. You know what they are? They're the giants in the Bible. Giants. Yeah, we don't tend to think about that very often. We like to think of uh, Goliath as probably just like Mark Ricker's height, but 3,000 years ago. You'd be a giant back then. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he's like over nine feet tall. And he may not have been the tallest of the Philistines. The Bible talks about how when the Israelites scouted out the the, um, the promised land, and they came back and they said, whoa, we can't possibly take this place because it's inhabited by giants. And we look like grasshoppers in in their sight. And the respectable among us go, I not really like to talk about that. I wouldn't use that in an apologetic conversation. Giants in the Bible? But there it is, okay? Well, Joshua and the Israelites either killed those giants who were the offspring of the wicked sons of God or they expelled them into Philistine territory. Okay. The, the verse references are there in the sermon notes. So how does it make sense of the genocide of the Canaanites? Well, it's spiritual warfare, the genocide of the Canaanite giants, or those people who were, who were descended from the sons of God, leaving their abodes and marrying the daughters of men, was essentially spiritual warfare against the fallen sons of God. And even up to the time of David, the Philistine giants were still alive and fighting Israel. They're coming out of Gath and Gaza and Ashdod, places that are still fighting Israel, by the way. Just recently, we're launching rockets into Israel, okay? The Bible looks at as, as the, the super tall folks in those areas as the Nephilim or the Rephaim or the, the giants, whom David and his mighty men were fighting because they were cleansing the land of this, this, this spiritual evil that had inhabited God's promised place. That's just one, by the way. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 19. The king of Tyre. Here is the object of God's judgment. Entire is a city that's north of Israel. You know where it is. But the language in this passage clearly indicates that the king is a guardian cherub who is in the Garden of Eden. Who's that? That's the serpent. That's Satan, right? The one who was anointed on the mountain of God, which is the place of God's abode and his divine counsel. And the king of Tyre became proud and sinned, so God cast him out of his presence into fiery judgment, and he has come to a dreadful end forever. And this is an image of Lucifer, of Satan, the devil, as a heavenly spiritual being fallen from God's favor in heaven and cast out of the divine counsel to die like men and fall like any prince. That takes us back to Psalm 82. We can keep on going. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel prays that God would somehow deliver his people who are in exile in in Babylon. And what happens? God answers his prayer right away. But Daniel doesn't know that because it's 21 days before God's messenger, his angel, shows up to deliver God's message. And what's this angel say? He says, I'm sorry, I was hindered by the prince of Persia. What's that? Well, it's one of those sons of God who was allotted to preside and minister and and to, in a sense, Judge the nation of, of Babylon. And finally, Michael, the archangel, the one who is, who is, who is uh, assigned to Israel, uh, frees him to deliver the message. And then the angel says, okay, after I deliver the message to you, Daniel, i got to go back and I'm going to fight again the prince of Persia, who's going to be followed by the prince of Greece. Oh, another one. These, these fallen sons of, of God are out there in the heavenlies doing battle and we can't even see it. That's just the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? First Peter chapter 3? I don't blame him, by the way, because this is a hard thing to preach. I mean, some of you are like, what's going on here? A couple of months ago, Pastor Steve preached a wonderful sermon from 1 Peter chapter 3. And you might remember, he stopped short before verses 18 through 22 because he made a comment like, and that would be really hard to go there. And everyone chuckled. And I thought, yeah, pray for me, Sean because I might end up <laughs> preaching through this particular passage. What happens here? Jesus Christ, after his crucifixion, preaches to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey in the days of Noah before the flood. Now that Christ is resurrected, ascended, and sits at the Father's right hand, the angels, the authorities, the powers have been subjected to him. And Peter has more to say. His next book in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, he talks about how in ancient times, God casts the sinning angels into hell, is what your Bible translation says. But actually in the Greek, it says into Tartarus. And what is that? Well, if you have a classical education, kids, then you know your Greek mythology, and you might know that that was considered like the lowest regions of Hades. Like the pit of hell, the netherworld, the place where you locked up the lowest of the low. And who were the lowest of the low? The spiritual entities who rebelled against God who get cast into the very bottom of the pit of hell, where you lock, th- lock the door and you throw away the key. God locks them up with chains in gloomy darkness until the judgment. And then there's the one that we read for our New Testament passage. Uh, John chapter 10. Verses 34 through 36 are actually the one place in the New Testament that quotes Psalm 82. That's, that's why... Um, we read it as our opposite testament, opposite testament reading. Now, who are the gods that Jesus refers to in Psalm 82, verse 6? That's what he's quoting. Well, traditional view is, is still alive and well. Many interpreters conclude that Jesus is talking about human rulers or judges. And this argument seems to make sense um, if you argue kind of in a circle, assuming that the human rulers of, and judges are in view in Psalm 82. You see that? They say, oh, he must be talking about human judges and rulers, because he's quoting Psalm 82, and Psalm 82 is talking about human rulers and judges. Well, John 10, that interpretation, uh, it it, it loses some of its its, uh, explanatory power if Psalm 82 is not necessarily talking about human judges and rulers. But if that's the correct interpretation of Jesus' argument, then he's saying something like this to the Jewish leaders. If, If if God in Psalm 82 would call mere men who were rulers, gods, with a lowercase g, then why is it blasphemous for me, uh, the true son of God, to declare myself equal with God? So he's going around saying, I and the Father are I'm, am, am one, I and the Father are one, I am in the Father and the Father is me, and they say blasphemy, and he says, well, wait a minute. Psalm 82 says that humans can be called gods, so you can do this too. That's where the logic leads. But I think what Jesus is doing is he's making a different kind of argument. There's an alternative way to understand John Chen. Psalm 89 is in the same context of Psalm 82, book of book of the exile. Okay, uh, psalms that are written for Israel to be able to speak to the nations to basically say, "You think you got the upper hand, but God is on His throne and He will judge the nations." He will judge you for injustice. He will judge you for idolatry. And you think that you have us right where you want you, but God is king. That's the theme of book three of the exile. Psalm 89, which is the very last psalm in book three, talks about how God's holy council, council of holy ones, literally the sons of God, is in heaven and not on earth. You see what I'm saying here? Psalm 82, Psalm 89, they're right there next to each other. They're in the same context. Psalm 89 saying, if there's any doubt about Psalm 82, God's counsel is in heaven. It's not the human judges. It's the sons of God in heaven. A better reading, I think, of John 10, has Jesus claiming that he's equal with the Father. That's John 10:30. I and the Father are one. And verse 38, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So the Son of God, Jesus, as the second person of the Godhead, can speak that way in his incarnate form in Jesus Christ because there are no, I'm sorry, because there are other non-human heavenly beings that exist in the divine council based on Psalm 82. So in effect, Jesus is claiming that he's not only a Son of God, but then he ups the ante because he's saying he's equal with the Father and therefore he's Lord of the divine counsel. He's not claiming he can use Psalm 82 um, language to call himself like a lowercase god like any other ruler or judge can. What that would be doing if he was doing that would be, in effect, undermining his claim to deity. It would be leaving unexplained why the Jews accused him of blasphemy instead of accusing him just of novel exegesis. And he would be contradicting a literal reading of Psalm 82. Okay, I see some of you are starting to nod off. Let's take a breather. Let's pause for a moment and consider where we are, okay? My guess is that there's up to seven groups in this room responding to this whirlwind tour of the Bible's unseen world. And I'm going to name them off, all seven right here, right? And I want you to think, that one number three, or that one, number six, that's me, okay? So to kind of do a little self-diagnosis here. Number one, some of you are saying, so what? I mean, I already believe this. I don't see any hands going up for that one. (laughs) Number two, yes, you convinced me, and I can't believe I didn't see this before. Maybe some of you are already there. I think probably a lot of you are in number three. I'm not so sure about everything that you're saying, because it's a lot to process in one sermon, isn't it? But let me think about it for a while, because you seem to be making some sense. Number four. (laughs) Nope. Sorry, Pastor Brian. My study Bible takes the traditional view, and I'm sticking with it. Number five. I'm a Christian, but I can't buy this supernatural, unseen worldview because it... It just makes me so uncomfortable. I mean, respectable people will think I'm a spiritual kook. I can't talk about this at work. Number six, yeah, I'm I'm not a Christian, so there's no way I'm buying this crazy stuff, swallowing all this pre-modern, anti-scientific, supernatural mumbo-jumbo. I'm out, and I don't have to worry about it because I'm not a Christian. And last but not least, number seven, did you say something? Sorry, you lost me when you mentioned Ugaritic scholars. (laughs) All right. Are you in one of those groups? If you're in groups one, two, or three, good for you and praise God because you're submitting to the Holy Spirit in humble faith. A person who professes to believe the Bible should think very carefully about what it actually teaches, but should in the end bow before God, the supreme author of the Bible, and pray something like this. (sighs) Whatever you say is true, Lord. That I will believe no matter what. So please give me wisdom and understanding to know you, to know myself, and to know that the way the world works, both in the things that I can see and the things that I can't see. Amen. If you're in group number four and you're sticking with your study Bible notes and you deny uh, God has a divine counsel, then you need to face the distinct possibility that you're effectively erasing that line between the inspired text at the top of your page and the fallible human commentary at the bottom of the page. Are you ultimately following wherever the Bible leads? or where your chosen theological tradition leads. If it's the latter, then can you really say that you're a Bible-believing Christian? Think about it. You may be entrenched and established in your tradition, know a whole lot of stuff, have a Bible degree or certificate saying, I've got my Reformed credentials in order. But you still need to straighten out your basic commitments. If you're in that group of respectable Christians who don't want to be labeled a kook, (laughs) then may I suggest the fallen God of religion has already seduced you to follow him, all the while allowing yourself to call yourself a Christian. Self-deception is a tricky thing because respectable religion, like that of the Sadducees, who also didn't believe in the divine unseen world, Uh, It'll earn you status, it'll earn you influence, it'll earn you the accolades of the world, but still nothing but the condemnation of Jesus. Hmm. And if you're a hardened skeptic, or you just don't care, right, then you need to repent and ask God for an awakening to the reality of what you're facing if you're actually living in the unseen world. Why? Because the stakes couldn't be any higher. That brings us to our third point, living in the unseen world. The biblical evidence for the, this world that I'm talking about, it's all background <clears throat> to the two main points of Psalm 82. We had to do all that work so that we could get to what Psalm 82 is actually about. See, the Israelites, they read this and they said, I'm group number one. I already, I already believe this. Get, get to the, the justice part, Okay. The first main point is that you must absolutely hate injustice that's inflicted on the helpless. You must stand up for the oppressed wherever you see them and repent of all the ways that you're complicit in it. Why? Because injustice, left unchallenged or officially instituted, the Bible says shakes the foundations of society and it leads to the collapse of civilizations. Shaking things up is the way that the gods, lowercase g, would have it. But the Lord God, he establishes the earth with justice so the foundations can never be shaken. I need to hear another amen on that. <laughs> and he ordains justice on earth from his throne in heaven, his mission control room, if you will, surrounded by his holy ones who are the remaining heavenly hosts who love God and do his will because the ones who have, are fallen have been cast out. The ones that are there are the sons of the Most High. And all the people on earth who love and obey God will live forever into eternity as adopted sons of God. That's a whole other sermon because that's the New Testament development of how Abraham looked up into the skies with a promise and said, can you count the stars? I can't. So shall your descendants be. The sons of God in the Old Testament, the children of Abraham from every nation, sons of God, We will be like those sons of God in heaven, resurrected like the angels, judging angels. It's the same Bible, Old Testament to New Testament. The strange stuff about the sons of God in the Old Testament ends up with God adopting his people on earth into his heavenly family so that we will be with him in the heavens forever as sons of God. By their faith commitment, To Yahweh or not, or by their commitment to Yahweh's justice or not. That's how you tell the difference between the two people. God's cosmic justice has already separated the sons of God from the fallen angels in his divine counsel. And by the same standard that God separated them, will the children of God on earth be separated from those who God says to them, not my people? This is the New Testament doctrine. Cosmic justice on earth is a matter of life and death revealed in the just de- deeds of God's sheep and the goats. Matthew 25. The second main point, this is the last one, of Psalm 82 is that God will arise and possess again the nations that he disinherited at the Tower of Babel. Okay. The original audience for Psalm 82, this was future tense. But now... In the new covenant, now that Jesus has come, the incarnate Son of God has come that we'll sing about in a few moments, let all mortal flesh keep silence, and has lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died, has been uh, cast into hell, in a sense, to preach the gospel to the spirits who are in prison, to rise again from the dead, to ascend to heaven, to send his Holy Spirit to gather the nations and undo the judgment of the Tower of Babel, So that people from every tribe, tongue, and people, nations can be called the sons of God. Before all that happened, before Christ, the nations were in bondage to wicked, unjust gods. God had cast off those nations and kept Israel only as his special possession. But now that Christ has come, the one true, only begotten, eternal, uncreated Son of God, in his death and resurrection... He has disarmed the fallen gods and taken back the nations as his inheritance. So yes, nations and peoples, as we look around here in 2021, we're going to observe are still serving fallen gods. And they will still do so until God's kingdom comes in its fullness. However, God has enabled the power of the gospel to conquer the rebellious fallen gods and those who still serve them. We as God's people now on this side of of Christ live victoriously in that unseen world. In the midst of that unseen world. It's not just up there and we're down here. It's everywhere. It's, it's, it's It's in places that you'd be able to see if you had eyes to see. And we live in that world by faith in Christ the conqueror. So the gods are fallen from heaven but like Satan they still roam the earth, in the unseen world. So you must resist with spiritual warfare. For, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Ephesians 6. How? Destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10. Put on the whole armor of God because you do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 6. Flee from sin and put it to death in your life. 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with Jesus. Micah chapter 6. Live as if all authority in heaven on earth has been given by God the Father to the risen Son, King Jesus, Matthew 28. And you may not yet be able to see clearly and see incontrovertible evidence that Jesus has inherited the nations for his kingdom. But we all ought to believe that his reign is a reality in the unseen world, a reality that becomes more visible as Jesus directs, by his divine counsel even today, to work and to watch as he brings many sons to glory in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, amen. That's what we say, uh, Father, when we are confused, and yet we say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, there is an unseen world we know from the revelation of your scriptures that is all around us. And if we are to be a people who are to understand what is really going on, to understand really who you are and really who we are, then we have to believe what you say. Even when it's strange, even when it causes us to lose respect and status and, and, um, and all the other things that this world has to offer. But Lord, help us to, with a smile and with joy, um, Suffer for, for your sake, recognizing that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and scorning its shame, because he was looking forward to the day when he would be able to give his life for those his brothers, the sons of God. Lord, we pray all these things through Jesus, the Son of God, the one who worships you, whom we worship, and who died and rose again. In his name we pray. Amen.